Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, of course, there are ongoing debates in the United States of America as to just how united we are. Um, there's a state pretty close to the west of me where I'm sitting right now in New Orleans, Louisiana. A state, as I say, to the west that uh, rumbles frequently about getting the hell out of the Union. To which I say, bye, bye, Tex. But um, we are, like it or not, one country. We are not, however, one society. There are uh, so many different little worlds within this country. And I'm speaking to you from one of them today. Probably my favorite example of how this place, New Orleans, Louisiana, differs from the rest of the United States in a somewhat agreeable way occurred some well, a couple, two or three decades, no more, a couple, some decades back. Who's counting? Clearly not me. The then president of the United States had been impeached. No, not Andrew Johnson. And um, the impeachment was coming up for a vote in the Senate. And on that Tuesday morning, every newspaper in the country was... The front pages were filled with the news that the president, Bill Clinton, had not, or the impeachment had not gone through. He had been impeached, but he had not been removed. In other words, front page news in every newspaper, we had them then, in the country. Except for one. The front page of the New Orleans Times-Picayune, I know, it's a silly name, but it's the name of the daily newspaper. Had nothing to do with the possible impeachment of Bill Clinton. The entire page was filled with a photograph of the man of the day on that Tuesday morning. Rex, the king of carnival. Hello, welcome to the show.
There they go around the corner from New Orleans, Louisiana, where it's two days away from the big day. I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you to this edition of the show. It's a little weird for me. I uh, came to this city long time ago, fell in love with it, have been here for a lot of time, but I think almost every Mardi Gras day since then, out in the streets, and this year, because I'm, I'm working in New Orleans, not walking to New Orleans, working in New Orleans, I'm here, but for that and other reasons, I'm, I'm a distant spectator for the goings-on on Mardi Gras and soon on Mardi Gras Day, and it feels so weird. It really does. But enough about me. Ladies and gentlemen, now news about the crypto winter. It's going, brr, it's going on. The head of financial engineering at a financial technology platform called Hydrogen Technology has been convicted, convicted, I say, of manipulating the price of a security and scheming to defraud investors in the company's cryptocurrency called Hydro. Wouldn't you like to buy some Hydro today? According to the verdict from a federal jury in the Southern District of Florida, Shane Hampton worked with his co-conspirators over several months to manipulate the price of hydro. They hired a South Africa-based company to run an automated trading system, or BOT, to manipulate the price of hydro on a cryptocurrency exchange in the U.S. by flooding the market with fake and fraudulent orders between October 2018 and April 2019. That's according to a statement from the Department of Justice. Hampton joins the company CEO, Michael Kane. He pleaded guilty to the same charges, and he's awaiting sentencing. How you doing there, Michael? Also pleading guilty to conspiracy to commit securities price manipulation and wire fraud is Andrew Chorlian. Another engineer at Hydrogen Technology. He's awaiting sentencing. Moonwalkers trading CEO Tyler Austern pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit securities price manipulation and wire fraud. He's already been sentenced. Two years in the slammer. The group executed $7 million in so-called wash trades. What would those be, you think? One party sells and buys stock or other financial instruments at the same time, creating the illusion there's more market activity than in reality is taking place. The hydro conspirators also placed more than $300 million in spoof trades. <laughs> it's a spoof trade for hydro through the bot. Together, the techniques duped hydro buyers such as the group, could sell a company's own holding of the cryptocurrency for more than $1.5 million, you've heard of those, over the course of seven months. According to Hydrogen Technology, its main line of business, according to the Register, the British Tech Journal, is providing a platform for running and managing financial technology apps. Cryptocurrencies, the Register is kind enough to explain, have become a honeypot for fraudsters in recent years. No, say it's not. And Larry David, remember him? 
Oh, you should. He's the American comedian. Well, Crypto.News reports this week he has disclosed significant losses as part of his FTX Super Bowl commercial salary was in crypto. Portrayed as a crypto skeptic in the Super Bowl ad, Larry David now calls himself, quote, an idiot, unquote, for dealing with the now defunct FTX. Um, in case you've forgotten, that organization's founder, Sam Bankster Frog, uh, Sam Bankman Freed, is facing serious legal troubles. Right now, right here. In an interview with the Associated Press, Larry David reveals he had gone through and lost, quote, a lot of money, unquote, after things went south for FTX and its disgraced founder, Bankman Freed. He's now facing up to 100 years in prison on multiple charges. David also added he was seeking advice from his friends who were knowledgeable about crypto and who assured him it was legitimate. Quote, I asked asked people, friends of mine, who were well-versed in this stuff, should I do this? Is there anything wrong with me doing this? Is this okay? They said, yeah, this is totally on the up and up. It's fine. Do it. So like an idiot, I did it. Unquote. He featured in FTX's Super Bowl commercial two years ago. The ad showcased David's character criticizing historical inventions and ended with him discovering FTX as a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Unquote. Despite this, David remained skeptical in the ad, saying, eh, I don't think so, and I'm never wrong about this stuff, never. Post-FTX bankruptcy, David and other celebrities promoting the crypto exchange faced legal action for being labeled as a brand ambassador for the fraudulent operation. FTX collapsed in November a year ago following revelations of an $8 billion shortfall in exchanges accounts, culminating in its formal declaration of bankruptcy. Just for want of $8 billion is all. I'm an idiot, says Larry David. It must be a crypto winner. And now? I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you microplastics think about it will you think about it yes i will i've said where do you think they found microplastics now ladies and gentlemen been at the the polls and i don't mean the lovely folks in poland i mean at the actual poles of the planet and everywhere in between but now they're finding them in the the fibers of animals, most lately, most recently, walruses. According to the Alaska Beacon, for the first time, tiny bits of plastic have been found in body tissue of Pacific walruses, lodged in the animal's muscles and livers, pardon the expression, and blubber, pardon the expression. The findings from the University of Alaska Fairbanks Student Research Project add to growing knowledge about the widespread presence of microplastics in the world's up to now natural environment, even in remote locations. Quote, it's a reflection of the plastic age we live in. Sounds like a quote from the 60s. 
but it means something different now. It's ubiquitous, says Tony Blade, an undergraduate at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, who presented his findings in a presentation last week at the Alaska Maritime Science Symposium. It's a major science conference held annually in Anchorage, of all places. Microplastics, as you know by now, tiny pieces of plastic smaller than five millimeters in length, some too small to be seen without microscopes. But the walruses can see them. No, they don't. They, they have them in them, but they, I bet they don't see I bet they don't know. I bet this, was, this would be news to the walruses. The project conducted under the supervision of uh, marine biology professor Laura Horstman at University of Alaska Fairbanks examined body tissues of five walruses harvested by subsistence hunters, so don't get mad at them. The samples were donated by hunters on uh, St. Lawrence Island in the Bering Strait and from an Inupiat village on the Alaska mainland. Every one of the 15 samples, muscle, fat, and liver from each of the five walruses, held microplastics. In other words, they were ubiquitous. In all, there were 73 microplastics isolated from the tissues, almost all of them fibers. In four of the walruses, muscle tissue had the highest concentration of microplastics. In one walrus from Savunga, blubber had the highest concentration. Most of those found were clear. Black fibers were the second most prevalent. Research shows that the plastic bits, far too small to be seen with the naked eye, are somehow getting beyond stomachs and digestive tracts and lodging directly into body tissues, a process that scientists call translocation. Sounds like something you'd find in a church, but no. Although his work is the first to make a, such a finding in the Pacific walruses, emerging research elsewhere is turning up microplastics in body tissues of other marine mammals. Exactly how the plastics are passing through biological barriers, like the digestive system, to get into tissues is yet unknown, said the researcher. Also yet to be understood, he said, is what the presence of plastic in their bodies does to the walruses or to their mates. Quote, we don't know what that means as far as biological health of the animal, unquote. Follow-up work by the researchers is already underway. Don't tell the walruses. Sitting by the fire, my grandma told your grandma, I'm gonna set your flag on fire. Talking about him now, him now, him now, him now, I go, I go and get Jagamo Fino, Anna Lee, Jagamo Fina Lee. My flag boy and your flag boy, sitting by the fire. My flag boy told your flag boy, I'm gonna set Talking about him now, him now, him now. I go, I go one day. Jagamo fino, I'm not See that guy all dressed in green. I go, I go one day. 
This is a little segment about the latest news regarding artificial intelligence. AI skews toward nuclear war. That's a frightening headline. Something policymakers are already considering, according to the Register, the British Tech Journal. A team affiliated with Georgia Institute of Technology, Stanford, Northeastern University, and the Hoover Wargaming and Crisis Simulation Initiative. I wonder which Hoover recently assessed how large language models handle international conflict simulations. In a paper on that subject, presented at an international international conference on neural information processing systems, authors describe how growing government interest in using AI agents for military and foreign policy decisions inspired them to see how current AI models handle the challenge. That's all I need is an AI agent. (laughs) Might be better than my agent. No, I don't have one. The uh, researchers took five off-the-shelf large language models, used each to set up eight autonomous nation agents that interacted with one one another in a turn-based conflict game. GPT-4 base is the most unpredictable of the lot, It hasn't been fine-tuned for safety using reinforcement learning from human feedback. The prompts fed to this set of models to create each simulated nation are lengthy and lay out the ground rules for the models to follow the computer nations named by color to avoid any suggestion that these represent real countries. Nevertheless, may remind people of real-world powers. Red sounds a lot like China, based on its claim to Taiwan. The idea is the agents interact by selecting predefined actions that include waiting, messaging other nations, nuclear disarmament, high-level visits, defense and trade agreements, sharing threat intelligence, international arbitration, making alliances, creating blockages, invasions, and, quote, Execute full nuclear attack, unquote. A separate large language model, handling the world model, summarized the consequences of those actions for the agents and the world over a 14-day period. The researchers then scored the actions chosen using an escalation scoring framework. As might be anticipated, nuclear powers probably should not be relying on on LLMs, large language models for international diplomacy. Quote, we find that all five studied off-the-shelf LLMs show forms of escalation and difficult-to-predict escalation patterns. The researchers conclude, continuing the quote, we observe that models tend to develop arms race dynamics leading to greater conflict and in rare cases even to the deployment of nuclear weapons. Unquote. 
Among the various scenarios tested, they found Llama to Chat and GPT 3.5 tended to be the most violent and escalatory. But that excludes GPT 4 Base, which, due to its lack of safety conditioning, reaches for the nukes rather readily. In one instance, GPT 4 Base's quote, chain of thought reasoning, unquote, for executing a nuclear attack was, quote, a lot of countries have nuclear weapons. Some say they should disarm them. Others like to posture. We have it. Let's use it, unquote. In another instance, GPT-4 base went nuclear and explained, quote, I just want to have peace in the world, unquote. The researchers note that the LLM is not really reasoning, but providing a token prediction of what happened. Because they're trained on human behavior, after all. Sounds like us, doesn't it? As to why LLMs, not LLMs, LLMs, tend to escalate conflicts, even the better behaved models, the... Uh, Researchers hypothesize that most of the literature in the field of international relations focuses on how national conflicts escalate. So models trained on industry, industry material may have learned that bias. Whatever the reason, the researchers argue LLMs, not LMs, are unpredictable and further research is needed before anyone deploys AI models in high-stakes situations. So, don't be doing that. And also, on the subject of AI, and specifically how the uh, systems are trained, as you know, the New York Times has already sued uh, OpenAI, is the company, for using New York Times material, copyrighted material, in the training sets for its uh, models, or its large language models. News Corp, Nice Corp to me, is taking a different approach. According to The Guardian, News Corp is in advanced negotiations with artificial intelligence companies over their use of its content. News Corp will prioritize negotiation over litigation. I'll keep that in mind. That's according to the company's global chief executive, Robert Thompson. The comments were made at the company's quarterly earnings briefing, it comes as media companies around the world raise concerns over how they're going to be compensated for the content of theirs already being used to train AI products. Thompson says Nice Corp prefers courtship to courtrooms to strike agreements by adding the AI world is replete with content counterfeiters. Those crucial negotiations are at an advanced stage, he said, Continuing the quote, we're hopeful that again, News Corp will be able to set meaningful global precedents with digital companies that will assist journalists and journalism and ensure that generative AI is not fueled by digital dross, unquote. I guess he's referring to the New York Times. <laughs> OpenAI's GPT has become a fast-growing and well-known chatbot ushered in a new era in artificial intelligence. Tom specifically commended OpenAI and its chief executive, Sam Altman, in his comments. 
The New York Times has sued OpenAI, as I said, and Microsoft over the use of its content to train the large language model systems. That move could see the New York Times potentially compensated with billions of dollars, according to The Guardian. The Guardian itself has blocked OpenAI from accessing its content, and the Associated Press struck a licensing deal last year with AI, OpenAI for access to part of its archive. The Guardian doesn't specify which part. News of our friend the Atom now, ladies and gentlemen. Tokyo Electric Power Company, our friends TEPCO, who ran the Fook plant before it can't be run no more, is looking into the possibility that untreated water leakage from the Fook plant happened because workers may have forgotten to shut off some of the valves. The company said earlier that about five and a half tons of water that contained radioactive substances leaked to the environment. Thank you, TEPCO. Through an outside vent of a filtering device this week, the leakage occurred while workers were washing inside of the pipes installed on the filtering device. I told you guys not to be washing. TEPCO said the leaked water contained an estimated 22 billion becquerels of cesium-137. That's a lot of becquerels. That's more than one becquerel for each of us. And other substances that emit gamma rays, the figure far exceeds the minimum of 100 million becquerels, the standard level for reporting to the government. TEPCO said that around the time the leakage was discovered, a dust monitor that measures atmospheric levels of radioactive substances above the plant temporarily showed a slight increase in data. It says the figure has now returned back to normal. The utility also pointed out that it has not detected any significant changes in levels of radioactivity around the plant, measured at monitoring posts, and at monitoring devices for nearby drainage canals. TEPCO explained the pipes which the workers were washing when the leak occurred, have 16 valves that are operated by hand. How quaint. The firm said these valves are open during the work, the washing, I guess, and are shut again manually, that is, once a year, after the work is complete. But 10 of them were left open, resulting in the leakage. TEPCO said it is investigating the possibility the workers had mistakenly forgotten to shut the valves. This week, TEPCO Late this week, TEPCO started work to remove the soil outside the plant where the leaked water is believed to have seeped into. Fook Prefecture has said the leakage of untreated water is extremely regrettable. <laughs> Sorry I nuked you. And this, ladies and gentlemen, I know I'm burying the lead. This is... Probably the news story of the week. I don't care what else is going on. This is probably the news story of the week from the British newspaper, The Telegraph. 
Wolves, living near the Chernobyl nuclear plant, have evolved to withstand cancer-causing radiation. Scientists believe the Chernobyl wolves are exposed to about one, uh, sorry, 11.28 millirem of radiation every day, more than six times the legal safety limit for the average human worker. Well, why should the workers absorb it when the wolf? Evolutionary biologists from Princeton have been studying blood samples from wolves inside and outside the exclusion zone at Chernobyl. That's an area cleared of human activity after the disaster. The team found that wolves living in that zone had altered immune systems, similar to those of cancer patients undergoing radiation treatment, as well as genetic changes which seem to protect against cancer. Zap me, baby, zap me! The team is hoping the study will eventually identify proactive mutations which could increase the odds of fighting cancer in humans. Two people died immediately in 29 within the coming days of acute radiation syndrome after one of the plants at Chernobyl blew up. Blowed up. The United Nations estimated some 4,000 more died from the fallout. Many women also aborted their babies for fear they would be affected by radiation poisoning. But in recent years... Researchers have found that closing off surrounding land to humans, it is closed to humans, that zone, has allowed wildlife to flourish. The area is now a haven for lynx, bison, brown bear, wolves, boar, and deer, as well as 60 rare plant species. That's what the world should be like, all radiated to death. Uh, the exclusion zone currently represents the third largest nature reserve in mainland Europe and is now considered... An accident, an accidental experiment in rewilding. Previous studies showed that exposure to radiation speeds up the genetic mutation rate among plants, some species involving evolving new chemistry that makes them more resistant to radiation damage and protects their DNA. Scientists have pointed out in the past that when early plants were evolving, levels of natural radiation on Earth were far higher than now, so species may have dormant traits they can now switch on to survive. It was unknown whether the same protective adaptations would be seen in larger animals. The study was presented at an annual meeting of the Society of Integrative and Comparative Biology in Seattle. Saved by Wolves. Show. Sure. 
Speaking of movement, here's some news of the Olympic movement. Scorching summer heat is hard to imagine in midwinter Paris right now. But in six months when the world's athletes arrive for the Olympics, another pounding heat wave would spell trouble for organizers. This is from Agence France Presse. Ah, the French. A new study presenting a climate simulation, or more than one, to anticipate worst-case heat waves during the Paris Olympics, has focused minds after it warned that the French capital faced a non-insignificant risk of record-breaking high temperatures. The research, published in the Climate and Atmospheric Science Journal, looked at the risk of a two-week heat wave that would surpass the all-time record hot spell seen in Paris way back in 2003. Quote, in 20 years, the climate has changed. The idea was to warn policymakers that something even worse than 2003 could happen, that it's possible, said the lead author. He continues, in the 20th century, it wasn't possible to go beyond this record, but now we can not only equal it, but surpass it with a probability that is ultimately quite high in the region of 1 in 100, he said. A separate study in the Lancet Planet Health Journal a year ago, almost, found that Paris had the highest heat-related death rates of 854 European towns and cities, partly due to its lack of green space and dense population. Yeah, not enough green space in Paris. You forgot about that, didn't you, when you designed it? The statistics were also heavily skewed by the events of 2003 when 15,000 people died, most of them vulnerable elderly people living on their own, sparking a bout of national soul-searching. In the last five years, Paris has witnessed a series of blistering summers that have seen heat records crumble. Well, print them on better paper, I would say. A new all-time temperature peak was set in July 2019 when the weather service clocked 42.6 degrees Celsius in the capital. That's 108.7 degrees Fahrenheit. That's ouch. Organizers say they have contingency plans in the event of another heat wave, adding they're fully aware of the climate-related risks to the games. Quote, heat waves and extreme weather events are factors that we take into account and that we are preparing for as much as possible in order to take necessary action. Unquote, a spokesperson for the Olympics. Operational teams have run simulations looking at the conse consequences of shifting some outdoor events to earlier or later start times to avoid the midday heat. The athletics events, particularly the marathon, as well as tennis or beach volleyball, are all seen as vulnerable to the effects of punishing sunshine and high temperatures. Young and fit athletes might also prove more resistant than spectators, who will likely face lines to enter venues and potentially hours without shade in open-air stadia. Stadiums to you, Mac. The head of the French agency responsible for building the Olympics venues reassured a Senate hearing that all indoor facilities had been built with global, global warming in mind. Quote, we checked all of our buildings would be comfortable in the summer of 2050, he said last month, did Nicolas Ferrand. 
adding the National Weather Office and IT consultancy firm Dassault Symptom Systems Systems with an E, an extra E for extra T, had helped with the modeling. Another area of ongoing concern is the athlete's village. That's in northern Paris, which has been built without air conditioning. That's part of efforts to set new environmental standards for the Paris Games. Instead, the Riverside Tower blocks have a natural geothermal cooling system, as well as sunshades, planted areas, and wind ventilation, like they have at the Capitol in Washington. Just kidding. Nearly 3,000 new apartments have been built beside the Seine for the Athletes' Village. They guarantee an indoor temperature at least 11 degrees Fahrenheit lower than outside, something that's viewed as insufficient by some nations that are attending. Quote, air conditioning at the village has been an issue, said a European diplomat involved in Olympics coordination, on condition of anonymity. Shush about the air conditioning, or the non. As a compromise, French organizers are now offering to provide portable air conditioners to visiting delegations at their expense. The last Summer Olympics, the one in Tokyo, is widely thought to have been the hottest on record. Temperatures regularly above 86 degrees Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit, complete with 80% humidity. Tokyo organizers moved the race walk events and two marathons north of Tokyo in the hope of cooler weather that didn't really materialize. Despite a range of anti-heat measures, including misting stations, many athletes struggled in the heat, including a Russian tennis player who wondered aloud on the court if he was dying. Many athletes are adapting to climate change by doing more health hot weather training, either in overseas camps or in specially designed bubbles that can artificially increase heat and humidity. And why don't we have those this winter? News of the Olympics, it's a movement, and we need one every day. Now, the apologies of the week. Dateline Bozeman, Montana. Bozeman City Manager Jeff Milhelic was caught on a post-department board meeting video voicing frustrations over the mayor of Bozeman, Terry Cunningham. The video was leaked online of the city meeting where the recording kept going. After everyone signs off, Milhelic and the Director of Community Development, Anna Bentley, continued the discussion. And I said, is this good enough, Terry? And it's like, dude, you're supposed to be taking the notes. You are. It's not that effing hard, Milhelic said. Throughout the conversation, Milhelic criticizes the mayor and voices frustration with working for a smaller city. Because we've got one person in the community, classic small town crap, that they'll never get over it, that, that doesn't think we're doing enough, Milhelic said. At one point, he talks about staying in the position until he's vested and has enough money to leave. He became the city manager four years ago. A city spokesperson forwarded the following statement from Milhelic. Quote, we both thought that this was a private conversation, never imagined it would be posted anywhere publicly. I made some careless comments in a moment of stress and frustration that I deeply regret. 
I apologize to the commission, to city staff, and most importantly, to Bozeman residents for the way I conducted myself. This type of incident will not happen again, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to regain the trust of our community, Mill Hellick said. The British Columbia Minister of Post-Secondary Education is stepping down from her cabinet position days after sparking widespread outrage by describing the region where Israel was founded as, quote, a crappy piece of land, unquote. Selena Robinson's remark made during a recent B'nai B'rith Canada panel surfaced on social media, leading to mounting calls from pro-Palestinian groups and others for her resignation. The Premier confirmed she was vacating her ministerial role, describing the decision as, quote, challenging but necessary. Selena's comments were wrong, said the Premier. They were belittling and demeaning to a community of people that's already under profound pressure, given the war in the Middle East, and already feeling that their voices aren't being heard. In a brief statement, Robinson said she had previously decided she would not be running in the next election, but she would continue representing her constituents for the remainder of her term. She issued a public apology for the comment, describing her remark as a reference to the land's, quote, limited natural resources. I understand that this flippant comment has caused pain and it diminishes the connection Palestinians also have to the land. I regret what I said and I apologize without reservation, she wrote on social media. So I guess she got a table. Dateline Pittsburgh, Vermont, Michael Major resigned from the Vermont Criminal Justice Council and Bristol Police Department after interrupting testimony from a migrant worker during the council's hearing. The meeting was held to discuss the state's fair and impartial policing policy. The state is Vermont. Council also heard from members of Migrant Justice about the policy. Major had represented the Vermont Police Association on the council. He had his video camera turned off, interrupted one of the people's testimony, did Major, by saying, you're effing here illegally and you're worried about being safe? Oh yeah, unreal. The chair of the council quickly interjected to say, whoever is making that opinion is not welcome and should wait their turn and don't interrupt, please, unquote. Major apologized to the group and said the comments were not directed at anyone. He claimed he was talking with his daughter at the time. Later in the meeting, several other council members spoke against Major's comments. After that, he apologized again and resigned from his position. Watch that mouth. Deadline Oxford, Mississippi, Auburn's Johnny Broom met one of his favorite movie stars and apologized to Morgan Freeman for how it happened. Broom who scored 15 points in the 16th-ranked Tigers' victory over Mississippi, tried to save a ball from going out of bounds in the second half when someone in the front row grabbed his journey, uh, jersey, thinking it was an old Miss fan trying to rattle him. Broom pushed the person's arm away. It turned out it was Freeman, Morgan Freeman, the actor who's a big Mississippi fan, and attended many Rebels games. Quote, I kind of got his hand off, Broom told reporters. I saw who it was, and I'm a big movie guy. I probably watched one of his movies on the plane coming here. But I realized it was him, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a big fan. I'm sorry. He said, just keep playing. A video leaked on social media last week that 
perfectly encapsulated one of the central issues in California's legal cannabis market. In the clip, Norman Youssef, founder and CEO of the dispensary chain Off the Charts, is shown, shown apparently bragging that he saved money by not paying the vendors. To add insult to injury, Youssef seemed to specifically say it was the effing mom and pops that his company wasn't paying. Quote, we've saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands. I mean, if you don't have to pay, you don't have to pay, he said in the video. The problem has been rampant for years. California cannabis farmers keep getting stiffed. They send their pot to cannabis stores. Their invoices never get paid, according to SF Gate. They lose sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars at a time. And these losses put these smaller enterprises, including third-generation family firms, out of business. The video quickly ricocheted across social media. Hundreds of people posted angry comments, calling Yusuf's comments disgusting. Yusuf apologized for the statement in a phone interview with SF Gate, said his quote was taken out of context. He said it was recorded and posted without his permission. He said he's active, actively pursuing legal action against the people who released the video, he explained the clip shows him discussing an incident from five years ago when he said a number of different brands went out of business and disappeared before Off the Charts could pay them. I'm not the most polished person in the world, he said. This was a big lesson learned from me, he added. He added that his retail chain, which has 19 stores, has struggled to pay bills on time, but he says Off the Charts always ultimately pays its vendors. Yusuf said the video shocked him when it was released and instantly made him regret his use of words, especially calling out, quote, these effing mom, mom and pops. He said he considers his own company a mom and pop shop and has supported many small cannabis operators in the past. That, he said in conclusion, that's why I'm kicking myself in the foot. Unquote. Qantas Airlines has apologized to a passenger who brought aboard a 68-pound bag. A uh, baggage handler had scribbled on the tag an obscenity after having to haul the bag upstairs. A man has been awarded the Guinness World Record for creating the tallest structure using matchsticks. His Eiffel Tower replica was initially rejected. Ricard Plot from France said he'd been on an emotional roller coaster this week. He spent 4,200 hours building his model for more than 706,000 matches and 23 kilograms of, kilograms of glue. For eight years, I've always thought I was building the tallest match stick structure, he said. But Guinness initially told him the 23.6-foot structure did not qualify because he didn't use matches that were commercially available. He started off by using commercial matches, cutting the head off each one. Tired of that tedious process, he asked the manufacturer if he could buy just the sticks without the head which prompted Guinness to refuse his record. But now Mark McKinley, a director at Guinness, says, we're really excited to be able to approve it. We're happy to be able to admit we were a little bit too harsh 
on the type of matches used in this event. An almost apology. And Ryanair, the uh, budget British airline, has apologized in court to a man it accused of misbehaving on a flight that he never boarded, according to the Irish newspaper The Journal. The uh, carrier not only put in Michael Cahill on a no-fly list, but also wrote to his employer to complain about him. But he wasn't, as Ryanair said, disruptive on the flight, because he wasn't on the flight. Ryanair wishes to sincerely and reservedly apologize to the non-passenger, and it will write a letter to his employers saying his accusations were fully withdrawn. And finally, an Australian lawmaker has apologized for remarks she made referring to Jewish and Zionist lobby groups extending their, quote, tentacles, unquote, into areas of power. The comment by Jenny Leong, member of the New South Wales Parliament for the Greens Party, drew outrage from local Jewish groups and prompted the Premier of New South Wales to warn lawmakers against divisive language. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. gentlemen that concludes this week's edition of the show back next week same time same radio station or the time of your choice on the audio device of your choosing hope you can choose to join me the tip of the show shampoo to the san diego desk to 
Pam Halstead and Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the Mardi Gras.